Well, turn with me this morning to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> begin reading with verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Apostle John, as we, we know through this study, is in exile on the island of Patmos, and he has received a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. We saw that in chapter 1. And in these two chapters we've been working through since then, uh, chapters 2 and 3, John is instructed to pen letters straight from the mouth of Jesus himself to seven particular churches that are spread throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Now these letters, as we've mentioned before, were written to literal historical churches that existed uh, in this later part of the, the first century. But the messages that they contain, the words that we've read and studied through these weeks, contain words and messages that are relevant to the church and the life of the church for every age. For the last 2,000 years, these words that have been written to the churches have been relevant. Because there are churches like these churches that have existed all throughout church history and exist even today. Now in what we've seen of these churches, there seems to be in the condemnation, the criticism that Jesus gives to some of them, most of them, there seems to be a progression of decline. Ephesus lost their first love. Pergamos compromised morally and let sin creep in. Thyatira was corrupted by letting sin remain in the church and not dealing with it when it presented itself. Sardis had a reputation of being alive, but spiritually they were dead. And we still await the words to the Laodiceans, which we'll see next week, whom he calls lukewarm. But two churches of these seven receive absolutely no criticism. 
No condemnation. And let's just put ourselves in the shoes of these churches. If we received a letter from Jesus himself, we would be so thrilled if he spoke to us and had nothing negative to say about what was going on in our church or how we were operating as a church body. We would want to be in the category of churches that are doing things well. Smyrna was remaining faithful in the face of persecution. And Jesus encourages them in his letter to them to stand unafraid because he knew that their suffering was going to get worse. He comforted them in knowing that even though they were to be put to death, some of them, they would never taste the second death, the lake of fire, but would enjoy eternal life with him. Now today we come to the church of Philadelphia. And they also received no condemnation, no criticism. From the words that Jesus speaks to them, we can see that Philadelphia, not only in reputation, but also in reality, was a faithful church. A faithful church. And let me just say this, it is possible for a church to be found faithful. Now, you might read these letters and think, man, this is just, this is just bad. And some of it is really bad. And it might be easy to become discouraged and to think, well, nobody can really live up to God's standard. And, and while it is true that we're still in our sinful flesh and we're not going to be perfect until the day we stand before him in a glorified body, we still, in this age, in the present church, as normal human beings, can be found faithful. And church, I hope that it would be your goal, your aim, to be found faithful. Let's aim for that. You can set all kinds of goals for a church. You can set attendance goals. You can set outreach goals. You can set financial goals and do all of these things. And, and that's fine. You can do those and they have their place. But nothing really matters in all of that if you're not as a body of individuals gathered together found to be faithful. Faithfulness is the measure of success. Jesus will build his church, but he does it through faithful Now, one key difference between Smyrna and Philadelphia is this, is that Smyrna was suffering and was about to enter into a more intense period of suffering. But when we see what he writes to Philadelphia, it seems as though they have already experienced a significant amount of suffering and have persevered and been faithful through that suffering. So Smyrna is entering into the intense period. Philadelphia seems to have come out of an intense period and they have still been found faithful. Smyrna had faith and it brought suffering. Philadelphia has already endured suffering and their faith has proven to be genuine. It's proven true. That's exactly what suffering does, church. Suffering proves what kind of foundation your life is built on. Jesus spoke of the man who built his house on a rock and the rains came and the winds blew and beat against that house and the house on the rock did what? Stood firm. But then the man who built his house on the sand experienced the same storms. The rains came, the winds blew, they beat against the house and the house on the sand did what? The kid's song says, went splat. So then the third verse is what? So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Storms are a reality in the life of every believer. And in reality, storms are a reality in the life of every human being. And the storms reveal what kind of foundation you're building your life on. The storms prove your faithfulness. Let's look at the letter. Jesus introduces himself at the beginning of the letter, as he always does. Verse 1, he says, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This is the one time in all of these letters to these seven churches that Jesus doesn't draw from that revelation of himself in chapter 1. We get new material here. He says, the one who is holy. Holy is to be set apart. He's different from us. He's set apart from anything and everyone else in all the world. There is none like God. And Jesus, speaking of himself here as holy, as true, as the one who holds the key of David, as he says, he's setting him apart He's setting himself apart to be recognized as God. Jesus himself is God. He's holy. He's set apart. Holiness also speaks to his righteousness. That's how he's set apart. He is holy and no one else is holy like he is. He commands his people to be holy as he is holy. But no one meets the righteous standard, the righteous requirement that he has. No one compares to his holiness. He has never sinned. Sin has never even been a part of his nature at all. I had a conversation with someone recently. We asked the question, do you sin or are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you're a sinner? Well, is a dog a dog because it barks or does a dog bark because it's a dog? It's not a dog because it barks. It barks because it's a dog by nature, in and of itself. And so the same is you as a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. Your sinning is an outworking of your sinful nature. But Jesus is righteous. He's holy. He doesn't possess a sinful nature. He is separate from us. He says he's holy. He says he's the one who is true. There's no falsehood in him. There is no shadow of turning, James says. And he's deceived by no one's pretentiousness. No matter what you may look like on the outside, he is the one who is holy. He's the one who is true. And he sees the depths of reality. He sees the truth that no man can hide. Now, here's the thing. He, he's describing himself this way, and if he'd have described himself this way to some of the other churches, holiness and truth would have been terrifying. But here's the thing. He describes himself as holy. He describes himself as true. Yet even when he writes to this church, he still doesn't bring any measure of criticism or condemnation to them. That's the kind of faithfulness this church was living in. They were living in the joy of his holiness, in the joy of his truth, not under the condemnation of it, because they were being faithful. He said he has the key of David. Just to put it simply, he unlocks all the riches of the kingdom. He possesses the keys to the kingdom of God and to all its glory. It's his kingdom. He opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens. A couple of ways you could understand that. One, you could reference salvation. Jesus said in John 10, he said, I am the door. 
If you're going to enter into the family of God, if you're going to become a child of God, you have to enter in through the one door, the one person, the one God, Jesus Christ. He is the only way. The door also, and I think in this context, more likely refers to a door of opportunity for the church. When God opens opportunities for the church, no one can shut it. When he shuts down opportunities, nobody can open it. You can't make things happen that, that God doesn't want to happen. And so as Jesus has revealed himself and begins to address this church, we see a number of blessings in the verses that follow that he bestowed on this faithful church. And I think we can bring this up even to today and learn from it in this. And what are the blessings of being a faithful church? What are the blessings of being a faithful church? Let me give you four. Number one, God-given opportunities. God-given opportunities. Verse 8, he says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Philadelphia was something of a, a gateway city. It was a city that was instrumental in spreading Greek culture and the Greek language throughout all the world. And, and that's exactly what happened. It became the language and the culture of the world. But now Jesus speaks to Philadelphia and he speaks of an open door through which the church will not make a culture or a language or a civilization uh, popular throughout the world but he's opening a gateway a door for the gospel Philadelphia will be instrumental in getting the gospel to the known world this church had been tried and found faithful and now Christ rewards that faithfulness with greater opportunities. That's exactly what he does with his own. In the parable of the talents, speaking of money, you remember the, he, he gave the three servants the certain amounts and two of them were found faithful with the money they were given. And then what did he do for those who were found faithful? Here's what he said in Matthew 25. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You see, it's when we prove ourselves faithful that God begins to open more doors of opportunity. You see, you must be faithful with what God has entrusted to you before you can ever expect him to give you more. You might desire to see something in your own life or in your own ministry, even some work you may want to do for God. But instead of looking way off into the future, making plans for what you hope someday will happen, what are you doing with what God has entrusted to you right now? Whatever you may want for your own life or whatever you may desire for this church as a body, you can't make plans for what hasn't happened. You have to say, what has God given us right now? What opportunities are before us right now that we may prove ourselves faithful? And it's as you prove yourself faithful and even endure suffering and trials in your faithfulness that God begins to open up more doors of opportunity down the road. So do you want to see greater doors of opportunity open for our church? One person said yes, thank you. Then be faithful with the opportunities he's put before you right now, whatever that may be. 
And here's the reality. Opportunity always comes with opposition. Opportunity always comes with opposition. We saw it when we studied Nehemiah and Ezra. We see it in the life of the Apostle Paul. He said in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he says, For a great and effective door has opened to me, comma, and there are many adversaries. God has opened this great door, this effective door. The gospel is going to go forth. He sounds excited. Oh, and there's many adversaries. There are many who stand against me. They just come together. It's just the reality. Prepare yourself for it and prove yourself faithful in those trials, in those sufferings. And God opens the doors on the other side. He opens the door to them because of what he says here in the verse. He says they have little strength. He doesn't mean that as an insult. <laughs> you have a little strength, a little power. Do you ever remember hearing that old song? I asked my wife this, and she didn't remember ever hearing it. Little is much when God is in it. Anybody know that song? Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Little is much when God is in it. You remember the boy who brought his fish and his bread to Jesus, right? And there's a crowd of people to be fed, and he's, the, the boy offers his lunch. And Jesus takes the, these fish and bread and multiplies it and feeds multitudes. Because little is much when God is in it. He says you have a, a little strength. And here's the thing. Our strength, or his strength is made perfect in our what? Weakness. Oh, my strength isn't all that much. My strength might as well be weakness. Well, guess what? God can work through weakness. In fact, if you had something impressive and strong, he probably wouldn't use it. Because he wouldn't get glory for it. You would. But if you have just a little strength, just a little strength, God can open doors of opportunity and use it. They have a little strength. He says they've kept his word. They've been faithful. They've been obedient. We see in all the other churches, just about all, all but Smyrna, the ways that they've deviated from the word of God, that they've compromised on the truth. They've let sin in. But he says, you haven't done that. God blessed them with the opportunity because they've been obedient to his word. And he says, you've not denied my name. Through all the suffering and the persecution that they'd experienced, they had remained faithful to the name of Christ and had not denied him. So the blessings of a faithful church, you have God-given opportunities. Second, you have vindication before enemies. Vindication before enemies. Verse 9, he says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. You'll remember the reference to these Jews in the words to Smyrna. These who profess to be uh, faithful to the law of God, but in reality they had rejected their Messiah. And Jesus says they say they're Jews and they're not. Yeah, ethnically, by blood they may be Jewish, but they are not God's people because they've rejected the Savior. And in these days, and when persecution was coming about, the, the pagans and the Jews, they were fine with working together to wipe out the, the Christians. But he says here, because, you've, because you have been faithful, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan to come and worship before your feet. They will bow down. The word is proskuneo. It, can't, it is translated worship in many cases. I think here it's best bowed down. Bowed down before your feet. And, it, and they have to acknowledge that the Christians have been loved by the Messiah. 
the one that they say loves them, the one that they say they love, in reality loves the, one that's, the ones that they're persecuting. Jesus will vindicate his people, his faithful ones. This is why Paul reminded us in Romans 12, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's not your job to get back at your enemies. It's not your job to take God's name in your own hands and run them down. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He'll take care of that. Third blessing, deliverance from judgment. Deliverance from judgment. Verse 10 and 11, he says, Because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one may take your crown. He promises the church of Philadelphia here preservation from the judgment to come. He speaks of the, the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. And presumably that's the, the, the period of tribulation that will come just before the return of Christ. He says, I'll keep you from it. And he gives this reminder to persevere and not lose their reward. Verse 11, he says, hold fast what you have. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. When he says that no one may take your crown, he's not talking about losing your salvation. But you can live your life in such a way as a Christian that you lose your reward. You miss out on rewards that God would give you in the end. He will deliver you from judgment. You will be saved. You won't have to taste to any degree the wrath of God stored up for sinners because all of that was put on Jesus. That's a blessing. Amen? But don't hear a commendation of faithfulness and think that you can let up. It would have been easy for Philadelphia to hear, you've been faithful, and they say, great, take a breath, let's coast for a while. No. Hear that you've been saved from judgment. Praise God for it. Hear his words of commendation that you've been faithful. Praise God for it, for his sustaining grace, and then stay the course. Don't let up. Keep your foot on the gas. Because if you let up, you just might lose your reward. It's not all about how you start, right? It's about how you finish. There are many who have started well and seem to be faithful in following the Lord and doing His work who have let up along the way and just sort of coast across the finish line and have little to show for their lives. Friends, let's be faithful. Give it our all until the very end, dependent on the strength of Christ because he's delivered us from judgment. Stay the course. And then fourthly, a blessing for the faithful church, permanent residence in God's city. 
permanent residence in God's city. Look at verse 12. He says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He speaks of a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar speaks of permanence, steadfastness, one uh, writer put it this way, he said, believers will enjoy an unshakable, eternal, secure place in the presence of God. If we live faithfully, prove our faith to be true, enter into the presence of God when this life is over, we will never again experience a moment outside of the presence of God. All eternity in his glory. He speaks of this intimate, personal friendship with God. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. We talked a little bit about names a couple of weeks ago. Those names that used by close friends. A name that's known to you and God alone by which he calls you because you have that close personal friendship with your maker and your savior. In the new Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven, if you will, for all eternity. Friends, these are many blessings. God-given opportunities, vindication before our enemies, deliverance from judgment, permanent residence in God's city. Know this, trials and sufferings are guaranteed in the Christian life. And probably all of you can attest to that. But the blessings of faithfulness are worth it. The blessings of faithfulness are worth every tear, every sleepless night, every moment of suffering you experience. Because God will bless you with opportunities to serve him in this life that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't have gone through that suffering. Right, Jimmy? Right, Kay? God will open those doors of opportunity. He will vindicate you before your enemies. Don't worry about them right now. When you stand before God and day of judgment comes, they will have to acknowledge who is Lord and that the people that they persecuted were loved by him. It's not, you don't have to take them into your hands. He will deliver you from judgment. So remain faithful and look forward to the day of that greatest of all blessings when we enjoy permanent residence in the city of God. Faithfulness is worth it. So what's the conclusion? What should you do? Be faithful. Be faithful. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would do just this in our hearts. That you would make us to be faithful. Give us such a love and a desire for you. That the things in this world, as the songwriter says, grow strangely dim. In the light of your glory and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.